The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 18th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you are a guest with us this morning, let me extend my welcome. My name is Robert, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of leading us this morning as we read and teach from God's Word, and we're going through a series through the Old Testament book of Ezra, and this morning we find ourselves at a bit of a transition point in the book. So as we get started, let me, let me help you get your bearings a little bit if you haven't been with us, or remind you if you have. Uh, in the book of Ezra, the first six chapters, chapters one through six, they take place over the span of about a hundred years. But then in Ezra chapter seven, chapters seven through 10 comprise one year in the life of God's people. So the story was stretched out in the first seven chapters or six chapters, and then it's compressed in the last four chapters. Chapters one through two, you may remember, they began the story of the first wave of exiles, Israelites who had been in exile in Babylon, who were returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That story started in chapter one. The story went through chapter seven. It started in chapter two by reminding us of who was going. And then in chapters three, four, five, and six, we saw the conflict that they faced in the rebuilding of the temple. And then God's resolution to that conflict and the introduction of Ezra and the resuming of the building of the temple. Now in chapter eight, chapters eight, nine, and 10, we're going to learn of a second wave of exiles who are going back. A second group who are going to be returning from Jerusalem, I mean from Babylon to Jerusalem, and their story is going to follow a very similar pattern. We're going to be introduced to them and their journey this morning, and then next week we'll see the conflict that they faced when they returned. It wasn't a conflict from the outside like the first group, it's a conflict from within. And we're going to hear about God's resolution of that conflict in their lives next week. But this week, we pick up the story of this second wave that Ezra is going to lead. It's in chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible open to chapter 8, we're kind of at a new part of the story. This second wave of exiles. And it's going to begin like this. Ezra 8 verse 1. These are the heads of their father's houses... And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. So lo and behold, the second wave of exiles going back to Jerusalem begins with a list of names, just like the first one. And I was reminded this week as I was preparing for this morning that I need to do a better job of planning the weeks when I'm gone so that someone else can preach the chapters with lists of names and places. If you were with us, I preached Ezra chapter 2, which is one giant genealogy. And here we are after I've been gone for two weeks, and I get another list of names. Let me help you understand the chapter real quick so you know what I'm going to do. The main action of Ezra chapter 8 happens in verses 21 through 23. If you've grown up in the church at all, you've been around the church for any period of time, maybe read Christian books throughout your life, if you've ever heard a, chap a sermon on Ezra 8 or Ezra 8 referred to anywhere, it's always verses 21 through 23. So before we skip to the main action and what we have in the midst of that, 
there are a couple of things that I want us to at least notice for our encouragement that I think God has for us. And the first one is in this list of names and what we find out. I mean, I don't want to blow past it too quick, but I'm not going to go through it in detail like we did in chapter two. Now, if you look at the list of names, there are a number of things that if we were teaching this in a different way, we could pull out, point out, talk about that are of note in the bigger story. We could talk about the fact that there are 12 families, 12 names, 12 tribes representing the 12 tribes of Israel and how they're leaving exile in Babylon, going back to God's land, much like a second exodus from the first one and tell the story. But there's something else I want you to see. There's something else that I think is important for us and of particular interest to us as we read through these names. This week, if you read through it and just do some of the rudimentary math, what you'll find is that there are roughly 1,500 people listed there in the genealogies. 1,500 total men or heads of families that they list there. Scholars would say once you add wives and children, you can estimate a total around 4,500. So roughly 4,500 people making this journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem in the second wave. Now, if you were with us when we started the story, you might remember in the first wave, back in chapters 1 and 2, there were almost 50,000 that made the journey back. And when we talked about that back in chapters 1 and 2, we noted that in relation to the total number of Israelites that had been taken into exile in Babylon, 50,000 going home when God fulfilled his word and said, when the time has come, I'm going to bring you back home. Remember, he said it through Jeremiah. When the call came, a small percentage of God's people actually followed. Well, here we are some 60 plus years later, another wave is coming and the number that come back is even smaller than the first. Why so few? Why are so few Israelites going back to the land that God had promised them, the, the sight and the, the physical, tangible reality of God keeping all of his promises to their ancestors, to their families, why are they not going back? Well, I think the answer here in the second wave is the same as it was in the first wave, and so I wanted to bring it back again because I think it's important for us. Life for God's people in Babylon had become to some degree so comfortable for them that they saw no need to pick up, make the dangerous journey back to the promised land and engage in all the hard work that came along with it. See, decades had passed from the first wave to the second wave. And in that time span, even more so for the people that are still in exile in Babylon, the sense of who they were, their sense of identity, their sense of calling, who God had called them to be and what God had called them to do had begun to grow fuzzy at best in their hearts and in their minds. The clarity of their identity, the clarity of their calling, it had become unclear. It had begun to fade into the background of their heart. And the affections of their heart had begun to be captured, had begun to be seduced. The affections of their heart had begun to be defined by all that Babylon held out to them. So even in the beginning of Ezra chapter 8, the first thing that we're reminded of by way of encouragement is that it's very important for you and I to always keep an eye on the affections of our heart. When the call came to come back home, the reaction of so many of God's people was, 
Nah. And if you want to know how bad it had actually gotten to, look at verse 15. Verse 15 shows us just how deep this was. Verse 15, Ezra says, I gathered them, all the people, to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped for three days. And as I reviewed the people and the priests, I found that there were none of the sons of Levi. 1,500 heads of family, men representative of God's people, gathered together, almost 5,000 in total, men, women, and children, and not a single Levite. Not a single one of the people God had specifically called out for the service of his worship and the good of his people, a spiritual leader in Israel, heard the call to go back and said, eh, I think I'll stay. If you remember, the Levites had a specific calling to assist the priests in the work of the temple and the worship of God. In particular, from the days of the tabernacle, they were responsible for all the vessels that were used in worship and the sacrifices and all the festivities. And in the days of the temple, they were responsible to take care of those things, make sure they were in good order, make sure they were where they were supposed to be. And they assisted the priests in all the work of worship. Well, in Babylon, there's no temple. All that assisting work that they were supposed to do wasn't there, so guess what they did? They built houses and planted vineyards. Took care of their well-being and the well-being of their families. Now the call comes to go back. Long journey, hard journey to a place where their houses have been torn down and the temple is no longer, to rebuild the temple and go back to doing the assisting work. Nah. I think I'll just stay here. You see, who they were by virtue of God's calling and the significance of their role, the significance of their calling had largely been forgotten in their heart. They had exchanged their sense of identity, their sense of calling for the the cultural definition of what matters, for the cultural opportunities that Babylon held out. The affections of their heart what they leaned into for that sense of identity and purpose and value had been seduced away. See, I simply didn't want to bypass the genealogies and scoop by the numbers to get to the action of the story because I think it would be foolish for us today to think that we're any different than Israel then or that this temptation is in somehow or in some way any different for us now than it was for them then. There is always the ever-present danger that you and I can exchange our joy, our deep love and security of the identity that we have in Christ for a lie, a cultural definition of what we should be and what we should want. Our sense of confidence in who we are by virtue of God's grace to us in Jesus and the value of our calling as a Christian, as a son or daughter of the Most High can become lost or at best fuzzy in our hearts. And the voices of the larger world around us can become more defining for us. And we can find the affections of our hearts leaning into what the world around us tells us we're supposed to be and what's supposed to matter the most to us. So Ezra chapter eight, even in the genealogy and just the recognition that someone was missing from the journey, just that stuff that gets skipped by so fast for the action, Ezra eight reminds us that we have to pay careful attention to the affections of our heart, that you and I have the privilege 
and the very important responsibility of encouraging one another daily, of stirring one another up in the gospel daily. One, that our hearts don't grow cold by the deceitfulness of sin, but also that the affections of our heart don't get drawn away. Pay careful attention. The temptation is no different for us now than it was for them then. But there's a second thing I want us to see before we get to the the main action of verses 21 through 23. As you read the story and you realize that Ezra has almost 5,000 men, women, and children gathered there getting ready to make this journey, takes stock and realizes there, there are no Levites, you know Ezra could have just gone on. There's 5,000 bodies there. There's already Israelites back in Jerusalem. He could have just made the journey without the Levites. But he didn't. Why do you think he didn't make the journey without them? That's a lot of people already. Why go get Levites? Why wait for Levites? Well, in Numbers chapter 4, you might be familiar with this law. I don't know. Some of you are Old Testament legal scholars. In Numbers chapter 4, it was the specific responsibility as part of the calling of the Levites to literally carry the furnishings or the vessels of the tabernacle or the temple. And so here Ezra is with 5,000 men, women, and children on their way back to Jerusalem. And as you'll read, and we'll talk about it in a minute, in the last part of chapter 8, they are loaded down with gold and silver and precious vessels for the worship of God in the temple. And he doesn't have any Levites to carry it. So while he could have gone on, Plenty of manpower and muscle to actually move the stuff from one place to another. Ezra knew, according to God's word, the value of all of God's people. All of their particular roles, all of their particular callings, and he wasn't going to go on without them. And so you read in verses 16 through 20 that Ezra gathered some leading men, he says in verse 16, men of insight, And in verse 17, he says, I sent them to Edo. Edo is a man who lived in Cassiopeia. And he told this delegation of leading men and men of insight, I told them what to say to Edo and to his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Cassiopeia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. So Ezra sent a delegation of leading men and men of insight to a man that he knew who lived in Cassiopeia, which most scholars believe was kind of a place where a number of Levites in exile in Babylon had congregated around a region where a lot of them were, sent them to Edo and told them what to say, send us some Levites. That's a strategic thing of Ezra to do. And verse 18 says, the good hand of God was on us and they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Malai and the son of Levi. So he's a Levite, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18, and also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, sons of Merai, and with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. And then verse 20 says, besides them, 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend to the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. I bring this up Because as I was studying this and reading this and thinking about us and thinking about what God is saying in his word here and and what's all happening, I was reminded, and I want you to be reminded, that all of the parts of the body are necessary for the proper functioning of the whole. Ezra recognized 
the importance of the calling of God's people for the right worship of the Lord and the good of God's people. And he wasn't willing to go on without them. You see, it's the same today for us on this side of the cross. Now, you and I, by virtue of faith in Christ, are said to be found in him members of his body, the church. And as a member of his body, every single one of us matters. Every single one of you matters. And as a member of his body, he has gifted each and every single one of us in different ways for his glory and the good of those around you. In fact, Paul will deal with this with the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't have time to, to dig into it, but I was reading Ezra 8 and I thought, well, Gezra was really, really bent on making sure that all that God had put in place for his worship and the good of his people were there and functioning. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? If we were all a hand, where would the whole body be? As it is, he says, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. You see, I began to think as I was reading through Ezra chapter 8 and was reminded that it takes everyone and all of the gifts that God has given his people for the church to be a faithful presence of the transforming grace of the gospel wherever he would put them. It takes everyone. Even as you read Ezra chapter 8, you get a sense of the very gifting even of Ezra than other people who were there. It reads like the journal of a bookkeeper or an administrator. And God had put someone in charge who was capable that way and gifted that way because they had to get a lot of stuff from one place to another. Lots of money, lots of goods. Ezra sets up people to administrate it, people to record it, people to watch over it, and people to carry it. And I was just reminded again with the roles that God had and the people that he called together and the value that Ezra placed on everyone playing the role that God had. It takes everyone, the fullness of the body, to be the faithful presence and witness of the gospel that God intends for a watching world. And so I'll simply say this. If you're here this morning and you gather with us, you enjoy coming, and you're not a member of a healthy local church here in Richmond, please let one of the pastors know because we would love to help you find a healthy church here in the city if it's not Redemption Hill, where you can use the gifts that God has given you for the encouragement of his body, the building up of his body, the unity of his body, the maturity of his body to be that faithful presence here in this place. Because you matter. And the gifts that God has given you matter. And we want to help you be able to do that and use that and taste the grace that God has for his people being a part of his body. Now to the main action, though. Is he ever going to get to the main action? How many sidebars can I come up with this morning? Main, main action. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning in verses 21 through 23. And in verses 21 through 23, the, the main action of the story, you and I come face to face with one of the most significant tensions that we will ever deal with in the life of faith one of the most significant tensions we will ever deal with in the life of faith. And here's what I'm going to say about it from the get-go, 
and then try to make sense of as we go. The life of faith, life of trust, is not as black and white as so many people want to make it seem. We live in a very hyperbolic age where language is used in a way to move people in one direction or another. Hyperbolic this or that language stirs the heart and the emotions. And when it comes to the life of faith, what it means to live a life of faith and dependence upon God, it's not as black and white as so many people want to make it seem. Now, why do I say that? Verses 21 through 23. Ezra, he's gathered everybody at the river. He says, there I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now get your bearings in the story if we're going to really understand what's happening here. They're all at the river. They're getting ready to make a journey. This journey was roughly 900 miles from where they are to Jerusalem. And it wasn't a straight shot down 95 like Maine to Florida. The trip that they were going to go on was going to cross multiple different types of terrain. It was a very hard journey that they would take and they would encounter different weather patterns and different situations along the way. And not only was it hard, 900 miles of walking across that terrain, they would pass multiple stretches along the way that were famous for being dens for pirates or robbers or bandits. It was a very dangerous journey for anyone to make that journey. Not only that, they're loaded down with gold and silver and precious vessels. So 5,000 men, women, and children, full of money, full of goods, having to make a 900-mile trek across bands full of pirates and bandits. And Ezra gets them all together at the river and says, we're not going to take the king's army to protect us. Now, I've told you before, if you've been around for a while, that I hope in eternity, one of the, thing that God, one of the things that God does for us is he lets us watch the Bible play out. Like, I want to watch it. There are so many conversations and so many things that I want to hear the voice. I want to see the facial expression. I want to know when Ezra told them they weren't going to get the guards. I mean, read it like a human. When did Ezra finally tell them, eh, the king's army ain't going to go with us? And what was their response? I was sitting there reading it and thinking about it this week and I thought immediately of the first time we went into Central Asia when Jake and Adrienne went there and it's so nerve-wracking, there's so much anxiety, you're going to a place in the world that no one seems to want to go to, you don't think they want you there. And you get there, and I probably hadn't breathed for like an hour and a half by the time the plane landed. And we get out and you make your way through this just beat up ramshackle airport and you know that you're going to go to a parking lot where a contact is going to pick you up. And we walk out of the airport. We're not talking. We're trying to figure out how far behind us is she supposed to walk. I mean, am I talking? Who do I look at? Who do I not look at? So many things going on. And I look to my left, and there's a parking lot. And there's two SUVs. And at the corner, the front corners of each SUV, were men in tactical pants, automatic weapons, and body armor. And I went, yes, my people. I mean, I, I think my step picked up. I mean, Jake was trying to come behind me. Adrienne grabbed my shirt 
from behind. Not supposed to do that, but I'm making my way to this parking lot. That's not our parking lot. Like, what? So no, ours is down that path. And so we have to walk around the men with guns and presumably bulletproof SUVs, down a path, these trees that hang over it, and these wooden ramshackle boxes that sometimes they would just shovel you in and do these searches on you that you didn't know were coming or not coming, back to a parking lot in the back where there was seven foot of fence with razor wire on top of it with 200 plus people staring back at you and having to walk in and find a contact in there somewhere. I was reading this story this, this week and thinking back on that moment and thinking, when did he finally tell them that they don't get the guards? What was it like for them to realize we're about to do this without that? Ezra said, we're not going to take the king's army. We're not going to take the king's men. God is going to care for us. And so if you've ever heard anything about Ezra 8, if you've ever read anything about Ezra 8, it always comes down to this. Here's the point. You and I in the life of faith no longer need to rely on man's help. We simply trust in God alone. As long as we trust in God, we can make whatever plans we want and God will bless them. Ezra 8 is the poster child for boldness, risk, and the life of faith. In fact, one pastor who's much older than I, who I adore, who I look to for a tremendous amount of wisdom, fantastic preacher, he referred to Ezra 8 in a sermon, and I was looking up different ways people have talked about it, and he said this. He said, there is not much of a greater hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom or to our access to God's power than always having a backup plan. So there's the message. The life of faith Backup plans, ordinary realities, ordinary means. Real faith. Get your idea, get out there, trust God to take care of you. That is now the shortest sermon I've ever preached in the history of Redemption Hill. If that's what Ezra 8 means. So, by way of a long closing, turn right in your Bible, just a couple pages, to Nehemiah chapter 2. Just a couple pages. Now you might remember if you've been with us, but historically Nehemiah and Ezra comprise one book. It's the story of God's people returning from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. With Ezra, it's the rebuilding of the temple. With Nehemiah, it's the rebuilding of the city. Ezra serves as a spiritual leader for Israel. Nehemiah becomes the governor. But historically, it's one chronicle of one big story. So Nehemiah chapter 2 Nehemiah is working as the cupbearer for the Persian king, and he has this interesting conversation with him. Nehemiah 2, look at verse 4. The king says to me, what are you asking of me? What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Here's what I want. I don't want to work for you anymore. If it pleases you, send me back to Jerusalem that I could be a part of rebuilding the city. And then in verse seven, he says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, 
that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I'll occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. He asked for an easy pass and prepaid purchase orders for what he needed to rebuild the wall, what he needed to rebuild the temple and his own house. You catch that? The house that I'm going to live in. You go ahead and pay for that too. And then you get to verse nine. Look at verse nine. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. Now remember, the province beyond the river is everything in the Persian mind on the other side of the Euphrates. That would be Israel. That would be where Jerusalem or Samaria is. So he's coming to the governors of the province of Jerusalem and Samaria. And I gave them the king's letters. Now look at what he says. I remember Ezra wrote this. This has got to be, it's so much fun. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. All right, so in closing... And a very long closing. Did Ezra have more faith in Nehemiah? Did Nehemiah have less faith than Ezra? Is Ezra more spiritual than Nehemiah? He refused the armed guard of the king. Nehemiah said, I'll take the guard, I'll take the purchase orders, I'll take everything. Go ahead. Are we more faithful? If we simply expect the extraordinary, or are we foolish for not using the ordinary means that God often provides? Yes. Herein lies one of the single most significant tensions you and I live in when we talk about the life of faith as a Christian. And let me say this, and then I'm going to help give us a few ways to think about and navigate this tension. I will sum it up this way. You and I, today, 21st century church, are never in danger of trusting God too much. Okay? We're never in danger of trusting God too much. We are in danger of not trusting God in every way. We're never in danger of trusting him too much. We are in danger of not trusting him in every way. And this is where the black and white hyperbolic language of the church is doing a disservice to God's people. It's not either or. Now, no one has been more helpful for me in trying to understand this tension and think through this tension and communicate this tension than a man who's a pastor in Charlotte now, his name is Kevin DeYoung. But some of you may be familiar with Kevin DeYoung. He speaks at conferences around the world. He's written a number of books. He wrote a book called Just Do Something. If you haven't read the book, you need to read it. But Kevin DeYoung has written in many places and spoken in many different venues about this tension. And it's been tremendously helpful for me to listen to him process through how you and I, as God's people, navigate this tension in the life of faith. Do we have less faith for, or, for trusting God to use the ordinary means that he often uses for our good and his glory? Or do we have more faith when we trust him to use extraordinary measures for our good and his glory? Is it one or the other? It's not. And so I'm going to use some of the statements that Kevin DeYoung has made that have been helpful for me, and I'm going to flush them through for us in Ezra chapter 8 so that you can see how they're built out there. 
first thing that helps us navigate this tension is simply this. No matter what your situation, you and I are meant to come to God first and most. I mean, the history of God's people in the Old Testament, the history of Israel, is one of not turning to God first for direction, for wisdom, or for insight. In fact, if you spend any time reading the book of Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah is constantly coming down on God's people through the word of the Lord that they turn to everything but him for direction. They go to sorcerers, they go to idols, they go to sacrifices, they go everywhere instinctively but to God. Unless we think we're any different there too. You and I have this propensity. We live in a world. We live in a culture that has this propensity to say the people that our world defines as valuable, the people that our world defines as important, the people that our world defines as insightful are the people our heart tends to go to first and most for things. So because someone can run a football back 101 yards faster than anybody can tackle him, we need to know what he thinks about something. Because God blessed someone with a bone structure that is stunning and takes good pictures, we need to know what they think about things. We're we're no different than Israel then. I mean, just think for a second. When you find yourself in situations like this, I mean, we don't have to find ourselves in the same situation, but you know what I mean. Difficult situations that you can't seem in your own mind to find your way out of, around, or through. When faced with all kinds of different circumstances, what is the instinct of your heart? Where do you go? If I'm going to be honest, more often than I would ever admit, the instinct of my heart is not first and foremost to look to the one true, holy, sovereign God for direction and insight. I've got books, I've got friends, I've got people. My first click is to something else. Ezra chapter eight, verse 23. Faced with a dilemma, 5,000 people, I've got to take 900 miles across a very difficult terrain in the face of pirates and bandits loaded down with more money than I could ever imagine and missing the people that God has called to actually carry those things from one place to another. What do I do? He proclaimed a three-day fast. He called God's people to set aside food, to set aside drink, so that for three days they could cry out together what I want more than what I could eat, what I want more than what I could drink, what I want more than any of those things is you. Your insight, your wisdom, your ways, your kingdom, your mercy, what I want is you. One commentator in trying to make sense of this moment in the life of God's people and what it must have meant for them to be there on the banks of that river for three days waiting. All gathered, getting ready to go, and now they're stuck waiting. He said it's important for the church, especially today, to remember that waiting time, especially when waiting on the Lord, is never wasted time. You and I live in such a frenetic, fast-paced world. Do, 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 go, go, go. Value is measured by accomplishment. How much you can come up with, how much you can produce. Such a frenetic, fast-paced world where we kick the door down first before we see if it's even unlocked. Waiting time, especially when it comes to the presence and direction of the Lord, is never wasted time. 
they would not presume upon God. When faced with this circumstance, regardless of the situation, we are meant to come to God first and most. But secondly, as we try to navigate this tension of the life of faith, you and I are to look to God to provide for us through ordinary human means, wise planning and hard work. Now, I'm supposed to go somewhere other than Ezra to show you that, right? Because Ezra is the bold faith man. Not going to trust the king's army, not going to rely on him. Just slow down and read him a little bit, though. Ezra gets everybody to the bank of the river. And what does he do? He takes a head count. He looks around, takes note of who's there, how many people are there, and where they're from. And he realizes... I don't have any Levites. We're missing people. So he devises a strategy. He sets aside a delegation of insightful men and leading men of the tribes and sends them somewhere he knows Levites to be. And he sends them with a message calling them back. When they get what they need and they're prepared to go on their 900-mile journey, read chapter 8, verses 24 through 34. Ezra goes into some of the most exacting detail regarding the keeping and the ordering of all that they were carrying. He assigned certain people to carry certain things. He assigned certain people to watch when they get to Jerusalem, make sure that everything that was carried gets back, making sure that all of it is recorded and all of it is ordered and all of it is there. Ezra did not believe that faith in God was in opposition to wise planning and ordinary means. He wasn't naive to the reality of what he was facing and living in when he refused the king's army. Yes, he said, we're not going to take them. But in verse 29, he looks at the Levites and he says, you need to guard this stuff with your life. Ezra didn't go, bandits, robbers, God will take care of it. No big deal. No. He said, you need to keep your eyes on this and you need to guard this. This has to get back to where it's supposed to be. Faith in God does not stand in opposition to wise planning and ordinary means. In fact, when Jesus would call us to count the cost of being his disciple, do you remember the two analogies he followed that up with? You remember, right? Anybody else remember the analogies? The first was of a king who was about to go into battle. When you consider what it means to be my disciple, You need to think about that cost like that king who has to assess, do I have everything I need to defeat the opposing army that I'm about to fight? Do I understand what's being asked of me? Do I understand the cost of going to battle here? And like a builder who sets out to build a a towering building has to sit down and go, do I have all the goods? What do I need? What's it going to cost me? How am I going to do that? Faith doesn't stand in opposition to planning and ordinary means. And so I love how Kevin DeYoung said it because he's so much more simple and clear. He said, sometimes Christians ignore good counsel and common sense because they think faith is a blank check to pursue your personal desires. Yes, God will call you to take risks. Period. It will happen. But he never calls us to take risks by ignoring reality. 
And he never calls us to ignore reality. Yes, we pray with full sincerity for safe travels on a journey. We still buckle a seatbelt. Yes, we gather together and we anoint people whose bodies are racked and suffering and call out on God to move in a miraculous way and heal them. They still go to the doctor. Yes, you can plead with God with all hope and trust and sincerity that he open up a door that you might find the job you need to take care of yourself and your family, but you better still put together a resume. And when you get to that interview, you better tuck in your shirt. Some of you need to hear that. You do have to tuck in your shirt. I know I don't right now, but right now I've got my job. So faith is not opposed. It doesn't stand in opposition. But on occasion, on occasion, you and I ought to bypass the ordinary or the available means that God uses and trust him to work apart from them. Did you catch that? On occasion, you and I ought to bypass the ordinary and available means that God uses in order to trust him to work apart from them. So Ezra said, we're not going to take the king's guard. Do you remember why? If you look down at verse 22, Ezra says, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king. He had just stood before the king and he had said, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Ezra discerned that it would not reflect well, not on him, but on the character of God. It would not reflect well on the character of the God that he had just proclaimed if he turned around and asked the king for an armed escort. In Ezra's discernment, doing that would have created something akin to a stumbling block for the king. The king may have misunderstood why Ezra was asking such things. Does that happen anywhere else in the Bible? Is Ezra unique? to the bypassing of the ordinary means that God would use in order to trust God to work apart from him? How about Paul? Paul would teach all the churches in the New Testament that it is the privilege of the church to support the teaching and overseeing work of the pastors and elders of that church. That the pastors and elders who labored in the teaching of the church deserved and had the right to be cared for and taken care of by the church through the resources of the church. But Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9, 12, I am not making use of this right. Rather, I will endure anything than put up an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see, in Paul's day, the celebrities, the rock stars, the famous people of his day were orators. They were public speakers. And they would go from town to town and they would set up shop and be brought into the theaters in the town and they would be paid tremendous sums of money to stand up and give these towering speeches telling people what they wanted to hear. And so Paul says, lest you get confused and think that I'm up here telling you this, proclaiming this good news to you in order that I might get rich, I'm going to work over here so that when the gospel is proclaimed to you, there could be no stumbling block in your mind, in your heart as to why I'm telling you this or what my motive is. So put them together. When may it be a time for God's people 
to step away from the ordinary means that God uses for their good and his glory and trust God in an extraordinary way to meet the need. If you put them together, put it this way, when using the ordinary means or accepting them would prove to be an obstacle for the gospel or the blurring of God's honor. So again, I will lean into someone else for clarity on your behalf. There may be times, the young says, when you say you're stepping out in faith and yet the reflection that the watching world gets is this. Their God must subsidize laziness and poor planning. Or there may be times you step out in faith and the reflection to the watching world is they must worship a God who is supremely valuable to them above everything else. In navigating the tension of faith, he said, God may be telling you that you need to learn to use a calculator. Or to some of you, God may be telling you that you don't need any more data. You just need to trust him and take the risk. It takes wisdom to discern. Life of faith is not a black and white hyperbolic thing. It's a tension that God calls us in his wisdom for us to walk, that we might live in greater dependence upon him for wisdom and discernment. That the ways we take and the steps we take might not just be for our glory, but ultimately, I mean for our good, but ultimately for his glory. And so as I really close, it's very Lenten to leave you in the tension. You realize that, right? As I really close though, and you read chapter eight this week again, I want you to catch the refrain that happens throughout the chapter. Three big problems Ezra's facing leading God's people back from Babylon. They've got a dangerous journey. They don't have any Levites. And they've got a lot of stuff they've got to get from one place to another place. And three times, Ezra says something about God in these situations. Recognizing he doesn't have any Levites, Ezra devises a strategy to send a delegation, to call the Levites back, to be able to fulfill the calling that God had given them. And Ezra says, by the good hand of our God, they brought back a man of discretion. Ezra had a bunch of stuff he had to get from Babylon to Jerusalem without losing any of it, without destroying any of it. So he sets up particular people to be responsible for it, particular people to account for it, particular people to carry it, particular people to deliver it. And Ezra says, the hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. The same goes for the journey they had to take. Ezra trusted not in his wisdom, not in his planning, not in his strategy, not in his ordinary means, but in the extraordinary grace of God to protect them. And he says, the hand of our God was on us. Friends, Ezra trusted God through the ordinary means of planning and strategy and the extraordinary grace of God's protection. And in all three, he knew ultimately that it was due to God's good hand on them that they were successful. So the question that we have to wrestle with as we go from here with Ezra chapter 8 is that how do you see God's hand in your life? Do you see your life as a random collection of events 
that at times God might intervene in, but it's his responsibility somehow to weave them into some collective story in the end? Or do you see the story of your life as part of his great story? And in the mundane and the miraculous, his good hand of grace and providence has been on you for your good and his glory. Friends, God uses ordinary means and extraordinary measures to provide for his people. And if you and I fall into the ditch of hyperbole in the life of faith and believe that the life of faith is a life only of extraordinary measures and means, you're going to have a hard time with the gospel. Because there is no better picture of the tension of God for his glory and our good using something as ordinary or mundane even as the incarnation. The human life of another man the substitutionary life of his son, yet the most miraculous, gracious provision for sinners like us, the resurrection of his son from the dead. The gospel itself is the most strategic and yet the most miraculous picture of God's grace that he's ever provided. You and I are never going to be in danger of trusting him too much. Yet we have to be on guard for the danger of not trusting him in every way. He desires for us as his people, for his glory and our good, to seek him in the ordinary, the mundane and the miraculous. Friends, I'm gonna pray for us and we are gonna have an opportunity to respond to God this morning. First, by reflecting on his word, the tension of his word May it stir us into a greater dependence upon him for the wisdom and how we walk. And then we're going to respond together by receiving communion, the body of his son broken in our place for our sin. When the fullness of time had come, nothing random about it. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We'll sing, we'll make much of him, and then we'll be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray as you get settled. Father, we thank you even for your word like Ezra 8 that we can get lost in various details and accountings about, but you, by your grace, remind us of your ever-present work in our lives for our good and your glory. Help us to not fall into error on either side of understanding what it means to live by faith in you, but to look for you, to trust in you, in the mundane and the miraculous, knowing that you work for our joy and you work for your glory, how you see fit. Lord, help us as your people to live as this faithful presence here in this city. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.